Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Well, we've been exploring biblical truths about who God is. I've titled this um, teaching series, Worshiping the God Who Is, and we've been looking at positive attributes. God is spirit. God is Lord. God is eternal. God is invisible. God is holy, holy, holy. God is light. Tonight, we're going to look at something different in that the Bible also speaks of what God is not. And when you find out what God is not, it helps you further understand the attributes of God. So tonight we're going to examine an attribute of God that describes what he's not. Okay? God is not changing. Or I will give you the theological word, God is not mutable. We don't use the word mutable, but theologians call it the immutability of God. Now, I didn't want to title it the immutability of God because most people don't talk that way. So I just said God is not changing. So what I want to do tonight is focus on three issues. Number one, we're going to look at scriptures that teach God is not changing. Then we're going to look at objections because there are people that would say, now wait a minute, there's some verses that talk about God quote-unquote changing his mind. So how can you say God doesn't change when there's verses that appear to teach that? We're going to look at some objections. And then the last thing we're going to look at is why is it important? Why is it important for us personally in how we worship a God who's unchanging? So God is unchanging in his being, in his character, as well as in his plans and purposes. Now that's what sets our view apart from maybe others. I'm going to be arguing scripturally, but I believe the Bible teaches that not only is God's nature unchanging, but also his plans and his purposes are unchanging. Other denominations and other churches may say God's nature's unchanging, but his purposes can change on the fly. He can, he can, he can, he can change mid-course and react. Um, I don't think the Bible teaches that. So here's the point about God being unchanging. Let me just ask some questions. Can God increase or decrease in knowledge? No. Can God increase or decrease in holiness? Or goodness? No. If God, is there any potentiality in God where he can be better than what he is? Okay. So if God can be greater or higher or better than what he already is, that means that what he is right now is not perfect. It's not eternal. If there's potential change in God, it means that he's not fully God. That there's a potential. He, like all of us here have been told growing up, you need to reach your maximum potential. Has anybody here ever reached their maximum potential? No. Which means what? There's always, there's always room for growth. 
Can God reach his maximum potential? No, because God is already fully God. He cannot be more loving than he already is. He cannot be more holy than he already is. He cannot be more perfect or righteous than he already is. If there's some fluctuation or potentiality or increase in God, it means that he was lacking or he was imperfect or he, he somehow was not fully God. Okay? So, God does not change in his being God does not change in his purposes. Now, let's look at some key verses that teach the immutability of God. And I'm going to use that word just to teach it to you. Immutability. Let's all say it together. Sounds like something from Star Trek. Immutability. God's unchanging. Oftentimes, there are metaphors in the Bible that teach biblical truths. Now, there are some explicit texts we're going to look at that says God does not change. But here, it's more of a metaphor, okay? So Deuteronomy 32.4, the rock, and it's not Dwayne Johnson. It's the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. The Bible calls God a rock. Now, when you think of a rock, what do you think of? Now, is God literally a rock? No, it's, it's a metaphor, it's a symbol. But when you think of a rock, what do you think of? Something that's immovable, something that's solid, something that's steady, something that's unchanging. Now, we don't want to press that too far because we know there's erosion that sometimes rocks will change over time. God does not change, okay? So God is the rock who's always perfect, Okay? Another key verse. Psalm 33, 10 through 12. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The counsel of the the Lord stands forever. In other words, God's plans and purposes don't change. They stand forever. They're eternal. God has made an eternal decree. Now, we're going to talk about God's eternal decree. We're going to talk about God's knowledge at another date. Tonight, we're talking about God being unchanging in his character and in his purposes. Okay? Now, here's another one. Psalm 90, verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world... From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God has always been God. He's the eternal God. From everlasting to everlasting, he's God before the world was even created. Now here's one that's explicit. Okay? The psalmist here is going to make a comparison. Okay? Psalm 102, 25-27. Of old, you laid the foundation of the earth. Okay, so what does that teach us? God created the heavens and the earth. The heavens are the work of your hands. They, the heavens and the earth, will perish, but you will remain. They, the heavens and the earth, will wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. God's one day going to destroy the earth in judgment. The earth's going to change. Because of the fiery judgment, God's going to do that. But the psalmist says, in contrast to the earth being changed, God, you're the same. 
your years have no end. Now here's the most explicit verse we're going to look at. One of the most explicit verses. Okay, Numbers 23.19. This is an explicit statement. God is not man that he should lie. Or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? This is a clear statement about what God is not. Now we talked about what God is. This is a statement about, this is what we call a theological negation. It's what God is not. We can learn a lot about who God is by what he's not. What does it say? God is not a man. God cannot or does not what? Lie. Can God lie? No. Does God lie? No. It says there, God does not change his mind. Now, let's ask a question. Why do we change our minds? Maybe you've been persuaded by evidence that convinced you. Maybe you didn't have all the facts. Maybe you learned new things. Maybe you took in knowledge. Maybe you made a mid-course correction. You don't know the future, so you do the best that you can. Does God have any of those limitations? Does God have all the facts? Does God change his mind? I'm going I'm to ask you explicitly here, okay, because I want you to remember this. What does Numbers 23, 19 specifically say? God does not change his mind. Does it say it on the page there in front of you in your Bibles? Okay. Got another verse. 1 Samuel 15, 29. Almost verbatim, but God's identified as the glory of Israel. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret. For he's not a man that he should have regret. Okay, this says God does not have regret. Numbers 23 says God does not change his mind. What does it mean if you regret something? You're upset that you did it. You made a mistake. You, you, you realize you shouldn't have done something. Can God have regrets? Can God change his mind? Okay. Are those explicit statements of what God cannot do? Yes. God cannot lie. God cannot change his mind. God does not have regrets. Okay. Job 23, 13. He is unchangeable. And who can turn him back? What he desires, that he does. Now that's about as explicit as you can get. God is unchangeable. What does that mean, who can turn him back? Who can change God's mind? Who can stop God? Who can go against God? The answer is nobody. If God wants to do something, he's going to do it. He's unchangeable. If God has a plan or a purpose, he's going to accomplish that plan or purpose, and he's not going to regret what he did. He's not going to change his mind. He's unchangeable. Job 42.2, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. What does it mean to thwart God's purpose? What does it thwart mean? Stop. Stymie. Thwart. Okay. Isaiah 14, 27. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? 
His hand is stretched out and who will turn it back? Okay, what does it mean to annul something? To stop it. Okay, if God has a plan and God has a purpose, is he going to accomplish it? Is anything gonna stop God from accomplishing his purpose? And if God does something, is he gonna change his mind and say, oh no, I shouldn't have done that? Or is he gonna regret what he did? Or does his purpose stand as they have an eternal counsel? Now, the next passage of scripture I wanna spend some time on because if you wanna prove to somebody that God is absolutely sovereign, this is your go-to verse. So when I do debates on my podcast and on YouTube with other Christians that don't believe the same way we do, I often come to this passage of scripture as a way to show them about God. Remember the former things of old. I am God, there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Okay, I want you to pay attention to the the verbs here. Declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Does it say I may accomplish some of my purpose? What does it say? I will accomplish all my purpose. What's God going to do? Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I've spoken. I'll bring it to pass. I've purposed. I will do it. Now, when God here speaks about the former things of old, he's talking about going all the way back to his eternal plan and purpose before the foundation of the world. And this passage says that God declares, declares the end from the beginning. In this first instance of declare, now, first of all, what does it mean to declare something? You say it. You announce it. This is not in your notes, but I'm just going to teach you guys something the Bible teaches, okay? It's called speech act. You intuitively know this because it's what creation teaches. When God created the heavens and the earth, how did he create? He spoke it. And when God speaks, does something happen? Yes. Every time God speaks, something happens. Things don't happen unless God speaks them into existence. So when God declares or speaks the end from the beginning, is he just merely predicting the future? Does he learn knowledge? Does he passively take in knowledge and kind of figures out what's going on? Or does he declare it because he's already decreed it to happen? Does God merely know, predict, learn how things are going to end? Or does he actually plan how things are going to end? Do you want a God who merely predicts? Or do you want a God who plans? I'm just throwing that out there. The second thing he says here is my counsel. So I'm going to declare, I want to declare the end from the beginning. I've got this whole thing figured out from the beginning to the end, from before the foundation of the world to the end of the world. And he says, my counsel will stand. I'm going to accomplish what I say will infallibly get done, God says. 
And then 30 says, I'm going to call a bird of prey from the east. Now, this is a metaphor for King Cyrus, the Persian king. God is going to call and rise up the king of Persia, whom God is going to use to bring the Jews back to Israel out of, Babel, out of, out of captivity. So at the end of it, that passage in Isaiah, God says four times, I've spoken, I'll bring it to pass, I purposed it, I'll do it. Now why does God say it four times? Why can't he just say, I'm going to do it? Why does he say it four times? It's a way of repetition to show that God is absolutely unchanging in his purpose. He's going to accomplish it. The way the Hebrew text says is, most surely, I will surely do these things. Okay? Now, Richard Muller is a theologian. Um, I think he's at Westminster Seminary in California. I think he's retired. But he says this. If God can be something that he was not, then the constancy of the promises, indeed the laws made prior to the change, cannot be guaranteed and are subject to change. Only a God who remains eternally and essentially the same can have counsel that stands forever and a covenant that's everlasting. So does God change in his being? No. Does God change in his purposes? No. Does God change his mind? No. Does God have regrets? No. Does God lie? No. Okay, Malachi 3.6. How more explicit do you want? For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, children of Jacob, are not consumed. These are Old Testament passages. God's a rock. God cannot change his mind. God cannot lie. God cannot regret. God's going to accomplish his purposes. God does not change. He's unchangeable. So let me just ask you a question. Is the Old Testament explicitly clear that God cannot change? Can you say yes with me at least? Yeah, okay. It does, right? What about the New Testament? Let's go to the New Testament. 1 Timothy 1.17. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. The word immortal there means a God that won't decay or a God that won't die. The eternally unchanging God who can't die. Okay? Hebrews 6, 17, 18. This is, this is a difficult passage of scripture, but I'm going I'm to explain what it means. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast the hope set before us. Now, in the context of Hebrews 6, let me tell you what, the, what those two unchangeable things are. God swears by two unchangeable things. Number one, what are the two unchangeable things that God says are true about himself? Number one, his character. God cannot lie. His character, he's unchanging. And number two, God's oath that he swore to Abraham. God promised Abraham that he would make him a great nation. He would bless him. God 
had an unchanging covenant with Abraham. So God swears an oath. God swears an oath on himself. God's promise is secure. So when, like when you go to court and you, you swear an oath to tell the truth or you sign a contract, what are you pledging in a legal document? You'll abide by the terms of the contract. So who does God swear by? Who's the highest person God can swear by? Himself. Basically saying, I'm, I'm like we're going to court and I'm signing on the dotted line and my name's enough. I'm swearing by myself that I'm going to be, be not going to break this unchangeable covenant with you, my people. Okay? Okay, James 1.17. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. What happens when you watch a shadow and the, and the sun moves or a cloud gets in front of it? What happens to a shadow? It shifts, it changes, it morphs. God does not shift. God does not change. He is the father of lights with whom there is no change. So let me just ask you a question. Does the Old Testament and the New Testament explicitly teach that God does not change? God does not change in his being. God does not change in his purposes. God does not change his mind. God does not regret. God does not lie. God does not shift like the shadows. God doesn't fluctuate and become greater in holiness because he was somehow less holy. God is constant, eternal, unchangeable, immortal God. Now, let's ask a very fundamental question because I thought about this when I was growing up, and maybe even as an adult you think about this, because you hear about this a lot. What does it mean for us to glorify or magnify the Lord? Don't you hear all the time we need to glorify the Lord? We need to magnify the Lord. Okay, what are you doing when you glorify the Lord? When you glorify the Lord, what are you doing? Does that somehow increase God's glory when you magnify or glorify him? Is there more glory in God when his people glorify him than there was not there before? So on Monday through Saturday, God has little glory, but when we come here on Sunday morning and we glorify the Lord, he gets more glory. Yes, Cindy. Yes. Does God's glory, does God change in his glory? Does God get more glory when we glorify him in, as far as increasing who he is? No, God's always glorious. God is, think about this, God is maximally glorious before the world was even created or any human being. God does not even need humans to glorify him. He is eternally glorified in himself before the world was even created. So he doesn't even really need us. And the Bible says even if we don't glorify him, the rocks are gonna cry out. So when we glorify God, we're not increasing his glory or giving him more glory than he didn't already have. We are making the conscious choice to, like Cindy said, focus on him. Put our focus on him. Worship him. God's glory is intrinsic to who his nature is. His glory does not increase 
or decrease depending on our worship. If that were the case, then God would be contingent on humans for something in his character. God's waiting around for us to glorify him so he gets more glory than God's waiting around for us to add something to him. And that's not biblical. I'll make a statement here. Some people disagree with me. God is not contingent on any human act for what he does or who he is. God's not contingent. What does contingent mean? God doesn't have to rely upon humans to give him something that he's lacking or to make him do something that he wouldn't already do. He is absolutely sovereign regardless of whether he created the world or not or created people. He's maximally glorious. Okay? Stephen Charnock, that... Stephen Charnock wrote, it was in the 1600s, I think. The one I'm reading is, was, came out in the 1800s. It's, it's a reprint. He wrote probably the most extensive theological treatise on the attributes of God, very deep. But he writes this. If God does change, it must be either to a greater perfection than he was before, or to a less. If to a better, he was not perfect, and so was not God. If to the worse, he will not be perfect, and so was not God. If to the worst, he will not be perfect, and so be no longer God after that change. If God could change, he ceases to be God. Because that means there was something in him that was lacking that he needed to improve. And if God needed to improve, he wasn't perfect. Now, let's talk about objections. Because I want to introduce you to a false teaching that's very popular. It became popular in the 80s and 90s and it's gaining traction even today. It's called open theism. Some people call it process theology. There's a little bit difference, but open theism is usually the name of it. Theism comes from the word God, theology, theism. Open, I'll I'll explain this. Basically, proponents of open theism believe that God takes risks. God took a risk when he created Adam and Eve because he didn't know what they would do. He's like a parent sending his kids out with the car keys and not sure if they're going to come home. Because he loves his kids so much, he allows them to make mistakes, and God doesn't know what they're going to do. God doesn't know the future. Human uh, human libertarian free will ultimately overrides God's sovereignty. They will say things like God even limits his sovereignty because he loves human freedom so much. They'll make statements like this. So Greg Boyd is a big, Greg Boyd is probably the most popular open theist. Um, In his book, God of the Possible, he'll say stuff like this. God felt authentic regret over his decision to create man because God did not know that man would sin. I created humans. I didn't know they were going to sin. Once they sin, God's like, oh my goodness, I didn't know they were going to do this. Why in the world did I create them? I took a risk. It didn't work out. I guess I better come in after the fact and clean this thing up. Yes, and... Yeah, what do they do with the verses that explicitly teach what we just saw? Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about the analogy of faith. This is something that you need to learn 
regardless of any Bible study you're in. So this, this goes for any Bible study you're in when you're studying the Bible. It's called the analogy of faith. You may be, know it by a different name, but it's basically the idea that Scripture interprets Scripture. Okay, The analogy of faith was a key principle of the Reformers. When the, the, the Reformers, the Protestant Reformation, when they came back to the original sources, when they got back to the Bible, um, basically it's the statement that Scripture should interpret scripture, okay? Now, our statement of faith, let me, let me say what our statement of faith, um, the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith says about this, okay? So this is what it says. The infallible rule of interpretation of scripture is the scripture itself. And therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any scripture, which are not many but one, it must be searched by other places that speak more clearly. Okay, let me explain the analogy of faith. If you come across a scripture that's confusing or a scripture that seems to be contradictory to another scripture, you need to go to the explicit, clear scriptures first and interpret the less clear in light of the more clear. Does that make sense? Let me just ask you another question. Are there any internal contradictions in the scripture? No. Are there going to be any contradictions in the scripture? No. So if there's something you come across and it appears to be a contradiction, then you have to step back and say, this cannot be a contradiction. This is confusing. I don't quite understand it. The analogy of faith says I need to go to the clearer passages and let the clearer passages interpret the, the less clear passages because there can't be an internal contradiction. Okay, now why do I bring this up? What did we just look at in the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament? Did we look at scriptures that explicitly teach that God does not change his mind? God does not regret. Okay, are those clear passages? Was there anything unclear about those? Was there anything confusing about those? Were those pretty clear? Okay. So, we want to build a theology over the clear statements of Scripture, the explicit statements of Scripture that specifically say what God is and what God is not. And we have clear, explicit Scriptures that say God is not a man, God does not lie, God does not change his mind, God does not regret, God does not change. So, there are some Scriptures that at first glance appeared to make it look like God regretted or God changed his mind, or God did something based upon what he saw people would do that wasn't his original plan. And open theists who believe that God does not know the future, and God takes risks, and God did change his mind, they go to four key passages to prove their point. So we are going to look at these passages tonight. And by the way, I, don't, I think I have all the scriptures on your sheet tonight, so that's the reason we haven't gotten into your Bible yet. We may get into your Bible here in a minute, but I think, I, I think almost all of these are on, the, on, on the, the, the sheet or on the screen. The first one is Genesis 6. Okay? This is right out of the gate when things become really, really wicked right before the flood. Actually, if you want to, let's just, I know, it's on your, I know it's on your screen and on the sheet. Let's just open our Bibles to it. I want you, at least let's open our Bibles tonight. I don't want you to come to church and be, and get cheated by having it all on the screen or on your sheet and not open your own Bibles. Come on now, Sean David. 
Let's open our Bibles. You know you're in trouble when your middle name gets called. That's what my mom and my grandma would call me when I was in trouble. Sean David. Of course, my grandma was in a southern accent. Sean David. All right. So Genesis 6, 5 through 7. Genesis 6, 5 through 7. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Stop right there. How bad is it? Look at that verse again. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's probably one verse that speaks about how bad things had gotten. Now look at the next verse. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and the animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry that I've made them. Now Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Okay, you've got a statement there that says the Lord was sorry and the Lord regretted. The King, anybody have the King James Version makes it even more difficult because the King James Version says God repented. God repented as if God did something wrong and made a mistake. So let me ask you a question. When God regrets or sorry that he made the earth, does this necessarily prove that God did not know what was going to happen? He created man. He's like, oh my goodness, I didn't realize they were going to be this evil. They've gotten so evil. I'm so sorry. This, this caught me by surprise. The only, thing I can, the only thing I can do now is destroy them with the flood. Can it mean that? Based upon the other scriptures we looked at. So we've got to ask some questions. What does it mean that the Lord was sorry? What does it mean the Lord regretted? What does it mean that the Lord grieved? Okay. What it's saying here is that it doesn't say anything about God not knowing what man was going to do. Let me just ask this in your case. Have you ever had a righteous anger that grieved you. Let's say it's human trafficking. Let's say it's child abuse or pedophilia. Let's say it's abortion all the way up to birth in some states. Do you as a parent or a grandparent grieve or get sorrowful over a decision your kids make? As a human, do we not have righteous anger over decisions that we see happening? If humans, we have grief and sorrow over decisions that other people make, does God have a right to express sorrow and anger over the decisions that people make? Does that mean he didn't know that they were going to make those decisions? Does that mean that God made a mistake or regretted that he did something in the sense that, oh, I, I regretted I did this because I didn't know it was going to happen. It's not the idea here that God is, God is not powerless 
and wondering why he made this huge mistake of creating people that would rebel against him. He sees their wickedness and the pervasive effects of the fall and the influence of Satan, and it grieves him so that he judges the world with the flood. That's all it means. Does it mean that God was caught off guard? Does it mean God didn't know? Does not mean God took a risk wondering what was going to happen? It doesn't mean that God somehow was surprised. It simply means that as a creator, God expressed anger and sorrow over sin, and he punished it with the flood. Now, we'll get to this at another talk, but this is all part of God's decree. Nothing takes God by surprise. God had decreed this from eternity past that this was going to happen. Okay, so that's a verse that a lot of times open theists go to and say, aha, God didn't know this was going to happen. God created humans and they got so evil and God didn't know that they were going to be so evil and it caught him by surprise and he, he was shocked and sorry that he did it and the only thing he could do was destroy him in a flood because he took a risk and they, they made the bad choice. Can it mean that? No. All right, let's look at another passage of scripture that they use. Let's go to Exodus 32. So we'll turn in our Bibles to Exodus 32. It's on your screen, on your sheet too, but we'll just... Um, uh, Trina, I just lost PowerPoint, so I don't know what's going on back there. This is right after the golden calf, okay? So you guys remember the story of the golden calf? Moses goes up the mountain. The people are like, that dude's been up there a long time. We're getting restless. Up, let's make gods for ourselves that'll lead us into the land. And so Aaron is complicit and they bring all their jewelry and he smelts it down and they create this golden calf and they're worshiping it and they're reveling and Moses comes down from the mountain and it sounds like war in the camp because they're having such a huge party and Moses is ticked. And what does God say? I'm gonna destroy these people. Okay, so let's read Exodus 32, 13 through 15. Actually, let's start back in verse 11. Since your Bibles are open, let's start back in verse 11. Is everybody there? Exodus 32, 11. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you've brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountain and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore your, by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as to the stars of heaven and all this land that I promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster he had spoken of bringing on his people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony's hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. Verse 14, the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Open theists would say this, God was going to destroy Israel. Moses talked him out of it, and Moses made God change his mind so that God didn't destroy them. So God changed his mind. God was going to destroy them. Moses convinced him, and then therefore God changed his mind and didn't destroy them. 
Let's look at this a little bit deeper and find out. It says the Lord relented. The Lord relented. Again, the King James Version says the Lord repented of the evil. The New American Standard, surprisingly, says the Lord changed his mind. Now, open theism goes directly to this verse and, say, and they use it as proof to say that humans, by persuasion, can change God's mind and talking him into doing something that he was originally going to do and then they changed his mind to do something differently. At first glance, does it appear like Moses is talking God out of destroying Israel? Is Moses bargaining with God, saying, God, don't destroy him? What does the word relent mean? God didn't destroy them. Okay, let me give you some arguments, three biblical arguments from this passage of Scripture, and specifically the book of Exodus, why I reject the idea that God changes his mind or that our prayers can somehow change God's mind. Okay. First, God in Exodus has already revealed himself as the unchanging I am. Exodus 3.14 comes before Exodus 32. How has God already revealed himself to Moses? God said to Moses, I am who I am. Say to this people of Israel, I am has sent you. When God says, I am who I am, that's almost another way of saying he's unchanging. He always is. He always will be. He's the unchanging, eternal God who simply is. Now remember, all of the explicit passages that I showed you that says God does not relent, God does not repent, God does not lie, God does not change his mind. So can this mean that God changed his mind in contradiction to what those other passages said that he doesn't? So number one, he, he already introduced himself as the great I am, the unchanging God. Number two, what does the word relent mean? Does the word relent, like so the King James translates it as repent and the New American Standard changes, or translates it as change his mind. Does it mean, does the word relent mean that God changed his mind or did something wrong and had to make a mid-course correction and Moses talked him out of it? What does the word relent mean? The Hebrew word relent literally means to be moved to pity or have compassion. This means to show kindness, to show compassion. The only other place where this word shows up in the Old Testament is in Psalm 90, verse 13. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. The word pity in Psalm is the same word for relent in Exodus. So all it really means, it doesn't mean that Moses changed God's mind. It simply means that God showed mercy on Israel and did not destroy them. Did God change? Was God going to destroy them? Could God have destroyed them? He could have. But the question is, just because 
God announced to Moses that he would destroy them does not mean that God would destroy them. Yes. And that's my third point. (laughs) You're, You're getting ahead of me. God is simply announcing his sorrow over their sin and clearly showing Moses just how offensive their sin was to the Lord. Okay, think about you as a parent. I'm gonna ground you from here to eternity. Now, do you have any intention of doing that or do you say that to your kids to get them to understand the gravity of what they've done? And then, okay, I ground you for a week. Your intention was always to ground them for a week, but what did you say to them? You're in a heap of trouble and I'm gonna ground you for, you know, for life. God's kind of here saying to Israel, you've sinned big time. So much so that you deserve death. You deserve to be destroyed. Now, God has a sovereign purpose that he's not going to destroy them. And here's the third reason, and this is what Cindy was saying. God made an unchangeable covenant with Israel that he could not break. What did it say earlier? God cannot lie. Did God make a promise to Israel that he would be their God and they would be his people? So could, I mean could is kind of a weird word, God in his covenant with Israel made a binding covenant of choosing Israel to be his people. Now let's ask the question, why did God choose Israel? Was it because they were better than the Egyptians? They were better looking than the Canaanites? They were more spiritual than the Edomites? They prayed longer and harder than the Moabites? No. Why did God choose Israel? Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 9. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Why did God choose Israel? Because he wanted to. Simply because he loved them. And God promised and God entered into a covenant with them that was a binding covenant. So even even though God said he was going to destroy them, because of the fact that he made a binding covenant in choosing Israel, he couldn't go back on his word and destroy them. Romans 11.29 says, For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. What does irrevocable mean? If you have an irrevocable clause, it means it can't be changed or overturned or done away with. 2 Timothy 2.13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Was Israel faithless? Was God faithful in the midst of their faithlessness? Yes. So, in other words, God's promise to love Israel with that said or steadfast love, was part and parcel of his very character as God. And if he were to destroy Israel, it would be tantamount to denying himself. So open theists use Exodus 32 to say, hey, Moses arm-twisted God into changing his mind. God was going to destroy Israel. Moses talked him out of it. So God therefore changed his mind. God repented. God relented in the sense that he changed his mind. Is that what it means? 
No, it means that God simply showed compassion when he could have shown justice. Is that making sense? So you got the Genesis account with them saying, open theist saying, God, God didn't know what he was doing when he created them. Caught him off guard. Their sin was, was a surprise to him, and he kind of regretted it. Here they're saying that Moses talked God into changing his mind. Okay, the next one is another one they go to, and this is in 1 Samuel. So let's go to 1 Samuel 15. This is King Saul. Now let me ask you a question. Was Saul God's choice for Israel? It's kind of a trick question. Who chose Saul to be king? The people, remember? They went to Samuel and said, we want a tall guy like the nations around us. Saul's tall. We want a tall dude. Don't care about his character or his ability to lead. We just want somebody tall and handsome. And so God says, give them what they want. Who was ultimately God's choice to be king? David. Now, Saul does a bunch of stupid things. And here you have in 1 Samuel 15, let's look at verse 11. Well, let's look at verse 10. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king for he's turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all night. Okay, what is God saying here? I regret that I made Saul king. Is God having second thoughts about what he did? Did God make a mistake? Is God sitting there thinking like, I didn't know Saul was gonna do this stuff and now that he's done it, I, I, he caught me off guard, and if, if I would have known he would have done this stuff, I wouldn't have had him be my king. Is that what God's doing here? Okay, go down to verse 35. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Okay, so you got two verses there that says, God regretted in the sense that maybe God made a mistake. Yes, Brent. I would say, did God, the trick question, did God make Saul king? Sovereignly, yes. The people chose what they wanted to choose, but it was all part of God's ordained plan. Okay, everything comes to pass because it's God's plan, regardless of the dumb mistakes people make, okay? Now, let's deal with this word regret. Does it mean God was kind of experimenting and fickle and didn't really know what was gonna happen? King James Version, again, translates that word for repent uh, as if God made a mistake. Um, is God expressing Second thoughts, or did God make a mistake, or did God, is this passage teaching that somehow God didn't know what Saul was going to do, and he changed his mind or had regrets or somehow was caught off guard? Based upon what we've seen so far, can it mean that? 
No, it can't. Now, the word for regret. It's the same word we saw back in Genesis chapter 6. The Hebrew word for sorry or regretted does not mean that God was caught off guard or that he made a mistake. What it means is that God was grieved. God was angry. God was sorrowful over that decision. It almost sounds exactly like Genesis 6, doesn't it? The Lord regretted that he made man on the earth. He destroyed the earth. The Lord regretted he made Saul. And this is where Old Testament is fun. It's no coincidence that Samuel links back to Genesis with Noah. What did God do? God rejected the world and destroyed the world with a flood, but chose one man to shower with grace and build an ark, Noah. In the same way, God rejected Saul, took away his kingdom, and chose one man to shower with grace to build a kingdom, David. God starts over with Noah. God starts over with David. Does that mean God made a mistake in creating the world? Does that mean God made a mistake with Saul? Or was this all part of God's plan? And God knew it was going to happen. So this regretting or grieving does not show a clueless, fickle, or frustrated God who doesn't know the future or who is somehow caught off by Saul's sin. Again, it just shows that God was sorrowful. Okay, now, in this passage of Scripture, there's a verse I, I, I didn't show you that we already looked at. Look at verse 29. 15:29. Same passage. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he's not a man that he should have regret. Now, this gets confusing. In chapter 15, twice it said the Lord regretted he made Saul, but at the same chapter it says the Lord's not a man that he should have regret. So, what's it saying? Did God not know what Saul was going to do? And Saul caught God by surprise. He wasn't sure Saul was going to do these things. And once, once Saul started doing these things, God's like, oh, goodness, I regret I did this. I didn't know what was going to happen. I'm going to have to make a change here. I'm going to have to change my mind. I'm going to have to go with David now. Is that what it means? It can't mean that. So these open theists want to use these passages to talk about how God either changed his mind, God regretted, God took a risk, God didn't know the future, God was caught off guard. You can talk God into changing his mind. Um, one last place that, um, and we'll just, we'll just, we'll just, we don't need to turn there, but Jonah chapter 3, verses 9 through 10. You remember the story of Jonah? We talked about Jonah last spring. Jonah goes into Nineveh and says, 40 days, turn or burn, God's going to destroy you. And what does Jonah hope happens? Jonah hopes they burn. And they repent. And Jonah gets mad. Okay, so Jonah 3, 9 through 10. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. 
When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. All right, so open theists would say this. God's plan was to destroy them. They used their libertarian free will to repent. God didn't know that was going to happen. Once God saw that they repented, he then changed his mind and decided not to destroy them. Okay, does God somehow change his mind here with Nineveh? Is he reacting in surprise to the Ninevites? Has, his repentance caught, has their repentance caught him off guard? I don't think so. God had determined to save the Ninevites, but God always uses means. What is the primary means God uses to save people? Let me just ask you a question. Are most people, most, I'm not saying all, are most people who are saved, do they usually hear somebody tell them the gospel? Whether it's from a friend, a coworker, a preacher, a radio, a podcast. Very rarely does somebody come to faith without hearing the gospel. Sometimes, but very rarely. So what is the means that God uses to save people? The preaching of the gospel. God had determined to save the Ninevites. And what was his means to save them? He sent Jonah. Now remember, Jonah didn't want to go. And Jonah thought he was not going to go. And God sovereignly overrode Jonah's free will and sent Jonah in the belly of a fish to teach him a lesson that you are going. And you are going to share the gospel with them. And Jonah doesn't even want to share the gospel with them. and shares the gospel with them and they get saved. So God determines to save the Ninevites. How does he do that? Through a messenger. Romans 10. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How are they to call on him whom they've not believed? How are they to believe in him whom they've never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they're sin? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So God's means of saving the Ninevite is to have Jonah preach. Is, is God, does God not know the outcome of what the Ninevites are going to do? Open theists would say God didn't know what they were going to do. And God saw that they relented, or God saw they repented, and then he changed his mind and decided, okay, I'm not going to destroy them after all because they, they responded the right way. Okay, Jeremiah 18, 7 through 10. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom and I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I intended to do to it. Just because God says I'm going to relent from evil, does that mean he doesn't know what they're going to do? Does that mean he changed his mind? No, God can't change his mind. God can't be persuaded to change his mind. Okay, so Stephen Charnock makes a good description of this again. He summarizes these passages about God relenting. He says repentance, and this is the old King James, repentance in God or relenting is only a change of his outward conduct according to his infallible foresight and immutable will. 
Let me, let me read what I wrote here because I'll make sure I say it. What may appear as change in God is not a change in his character or essence, nor is it a change in his eternal plan. God is not reacting on the fly and changing his mind. Instead, he is working out in time and space what he had already planned in a secret council. To us as finite humans, it may appear as God changing his mind. Nevertheless, God did not change anything. He has exhaustive foreknowledge of everything that's going to happen, both actual and potential, and he has an eternal decree. What actually happens in time and space is an outworking of God's eternal decree. So let me re- reemphasize what I just said there. Does God, and this is another, this is another topic, but we'll, we'll, we'll introduce it tonight. Does God know everything? Does God have exhaustive knowledge of everything? Actual and potential. Does God know millions of potentialities and actualities? Does he know it? Okay. Does God have a sovereign plan? Does he give us that information about what his sovereign plan is? No. Sometimes. Is God working out his plan in time and space through humans? Yes. Is what happens part of God's plan? Yes. What appears to us as maybe God changing his mind is not God changing his mind. It's God's working out his secret plan he didn't tell us in time and space, and we're just seeing it unfold. We're all the time, God knows exactly what he's doing, and God knows the outcome, and God's plan the outcome. Just from our perspective, it looks like maybe God appeared to somehow change. But you've got emphatic passages of scripture that teach God is not a man that he should lie. God is not a man that he should change his, man, change his mind. God is not a man that he should have regrets. God is unchanging. I, the Lord, do not change. So here's the question. Does God change? Does God change his mind? Can you persuade God to change his mind? Does God get caught off guard by things he sees and regrets what he did and th- thought it was a mistake? No. Okay. So I said tonight we're going to do three things. Number one, I was going to give you the verses that teach that God is unchanging. We did that. I said number two, we're going to deal with the objections that open theists give to say that God does change his mind and that God doesn't know the future. Now we're going to look at number three, which I think is probably the most important. It's the application. How does this truth of God's immutability or unchanging nature impact us personally? It's the so what. So, I mean, you could be like, okay, God's unchanging, so what? Thanks, Pastor Sean. I, you know, I, I appreciate the theology lesson. I appreciate the Old Testament. Who cares? Well, here's why you should care. Let me give you some reasons. Here's the first. Because God is unchanging, he will most surely save his people. Romans 8.30 Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. When did predestination take place? In eternity past. When did calling take place? At a moment in time. You were justified when you believed 
and you will be glorified on that final day. If God could change, are you guaranteed that what he started, he will end? Is there any gap in those who were predestined to those who are glorified? In other words, can God predestine you and call you and then you not get to the end? No. God saves you from first to last. If God was changing anywhere across the spectrum, God could say, you know what? I chose you and I called you, but you know what? I'm going to change my mind and you're not going to get to heaven. Would that give you any encouragement if God changed? No. What God started in eternity past, he's going to finish. He's going to save you to the end. Yes, Cindy. Yeah, Philippians 1.6. Yeah, Philippians 1.6, I am confident of this. If he who started a good work in you will complete it or bring it to completion on the day of Christ. Ephesians 1, 4-5, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. God had an unchanging purpose to choose you before time to guarantee that you would be saved. And then God, once he chose you, he's going to keep you. John 10, 28-30. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one's able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. If Jesus gives you eternal life, is he going to take it away because somehow he's changed his mind? I give you eternal life, but I'm going to take it back. You'll never perish, but I'm going to change my mind. Maybe you will perish. No one can snatch you out of my hand. Well, maybe I'll change my mind, and maybe I won't hold you as tight. If God was changing, would you have any hope of your salvation? So, number one, because God is unchanging, it guarantees your salvation, that you're in God's grip. Okay, number two. Because God is unchanging, he will take care of us to the end. He promises to take care of us. If God can change, what hope do we have that he'll take care of us? Psalm 16, 8. I've set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be what? Shaken. I won't be shaken because God is always with me. What does God promise to do in 1 Corinthians 1, 8 through 9? He will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. God is faithful to do what? Sustain you to the end take care of you to the end. If God changed his mind, how do you know that he would be faithful to sustain you to the end? What would happen if God said, you know what, you've sinned one too many times. I'm not going to sustain you to the end. I've changed my mind. I know I chose you and I know I made a promise to you, but I'm just going to change my mind because after all, I didn't know what you were going to do and you took me off by surprise and I'm kind of making a mid-course change to see what's going to happen and you've kind of disappointed me, so you're on your own now. Would that give you any hope whatsoever? 2 Corinthians 1, 20 through 22. 
all the promises of God find their yes in him. That's talking about Jesus. That is why through him, we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put a seal on us and given the Holy Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. All of God's promises find their yes in Jesus. What if God changed his promises? All right, third. Because God is unchanging, we can have assurance of our salvation. This is, I could, I could spend a whole Sunday talking about assurance of salvation because a lot of Christians are confused about this. A lot of Christians think that the, like, assurance of salvation asks a different question. There's two questions. How do you get saved? By grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. How do you know you're saved? Different question. Not how do you get saved. Assurance of salvation is how do you know you're saved? And a lot of Christians base their assurance of how they know they're saved on their level of obedience, the level of fruit that they produce, the intensity of their faith, how many days they have their quiet time, how high they raised their hands in church when they were singing. What's your assurance based on? If your assurance is based on anything other than Jesus, it's in the wrong place. How do you know you're saved? Because Jesus holds me. Because his blood and righteousness. In our Confession of Faith, the Second London Baptist, it talks about assurance of salvation in chapter 18. This certainty, the certainty of our salvation, is not a bare conjectural and probable persuasion grounded upon a fallible hope, but on an infallible assurance of faith founded on the blood and righteousness of Christ revealed in the gospel. My hope is built on nothing less than how high I raise my hands and listen to Caleb. Is that the way the song goes? My hope is built on nothing less than how much I have my quiet time each morning. What does it say? My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. What's our assurance based upon? Jesus. So if Jesus changes his mind... Or God changes, what assurance do you have that you're saved? You have none. Okay, fourth. Because God is unchanging, we can be confident that he will fulfill his prophetic promises. How do open theists deal with prophecy? If God doesn't know the future, how do you know it's going to end the way it's supposed to end? How is Jesus going to come back when he's supposed to come back? How are these things going to be fulfilled? Do you know how Revelation starts? The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants, the things that what? Must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who are the witnesses of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ, even all that he saw, blessed be the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and keep what is written, for the time is near. The things that must soon take place. 
So let me ask you a question. All the prophecies in Revelation, all the prophecies in the Bible, must they take place? Who determines how they take place? If God changes his mind or God is changing, do we have any assurance that prophecy is going to be fulfilled? Okay, last one. Because God is unchanging, we can worship him with confident joy. Here's the bottom line. Why worship a, a God that can change? I mean, that's the bottom line. Why would you worship a God that can change his mind, a God that's fickle, a God that's caught off guard, a God that's changing, a God that doesn't know the future, a God that's trying his best to figure things out on the fly? Why worship that? That's just kind of like we are. <clears throat> you remember Back to the Future, the second one, <clears throat> where Biff goes into the future and he, and he finds that, he finds that um, what was it, the baseball score thing, and he, he predicts who's going to win the World Series, and then in the third one, he becomes this millionaire because he picked it out. I mean, even the best predictor by cheating is still a human. God's not the best predictor. He's the sovereign God who's unchanging. So Hebrews 12, 28 through 29 says this. Therefore, let us be grateful for we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken or cannot be changed or cannot be, be broken. Why? Or what should we do in response to that? Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Because God is unchanging and God's giving us an unchanging, unshakable kingdom, because God is a solid rock, because God cannot change, because God does not have regrets, because God is the unchanging, immortal God, because God is solid, we should worship him in reverence and awe. Why worship a God that can change? So that's all I've got tonight. We've got 15 minutes left. We can either hightail it out of here or you guys can ask more questions. I know you're going to have a question, Brent. Go for it. I'm going to restate your question for Facebook audience. So Einstein and the, okay, I'm just saying for people I heard out there, Einstein and the fourth dimension being time and God is outside of time and can be in all places. So, okay. All right. So what's your, that, that's your comment. What's your question? <clears throat> no, the Hebrew word's Naham. Let me make sure it's Naham. I think it is. Let me go back and look at my notes. And it's actually...
yeah, I don't have it in my notes, but I'm pretty sure it's Naham. Um, and basically, that word really could just mean that God is sorrowful. Here's the thing. I'm, let me say this, but this is maybe something I didn't say. I'm going to use a big word, okay? So I'm going to explain the big word. Sometimes the Bible uses what we call anthropomorphisms. Let me explain what an anthropomorphism is before you accuse me of speaking in tongues. Okay, anthropomorphism is giving God human-like qualities so that we can understand him better. You're dealing with an eternal God who's outside of time and space, who's holy, who's unchanging, who is totally other. We have finite, limited minds that are really hard to understand big concepts like that. So sometimes the Bible writers will bring things down on our level by attributing things we can relate to, human-type things, and they'll, they'll give those to God as a way for us to better understand it. Not that God has become a man or God is exactly like a man, but it's so that we can relate to it. So when God regrets, it's a holy, infinite regretting, not a human-type regretting. When you, as a human, regret, what do you do? What, what, what's all involved in your regret? I did something wrong. I made a mistake. I didn't know the consequences. When God has regret, can that be said of him? Can God say, I, I didn't know what was going to happen. I did something wrong. I didn't know the consequences. No, it can't be said of God. But the human language is used so that we can understand that God, as infinite as he is, can still express sorrow over the sins of his people. Not because it caught him off guard or he didn't know, just that he's expressing emotion. God is not a robot. Okay? Aquinas called God the, the, the unmoved mover or pure, or pure um, like pure essence. And sometimes people have looked at the immutability of God as if God is not, not only is God unchanging, but God's almost like a robot that has no emotions. Like he's a rock or he's... Um, He's immovable, like you can't do it. I mean, like, so there's a difference between God being unchanging and God expressing emotion. I remember John Piper one time saying, don't even begin to peer into the emotional character of God because you're dealing with a complex being that we have no clue. And the Bible's doing the best it can on our level to explain an infinite God in human language. So anytime that there's human attributes attributed to God, we have to remember that those are metaphorical, those are helpful for us to understand God, but there's always that holiness and the eternal unchanging nature of God attached to it, so it's not like the way we would experience it. Does that make sense? Any other questions? Has anybody ever met an open theist or talked to an open theist that believes? Brent's like raising his hand. It's very interesting because they'll be like, like Adam and Eve was a project that God wasn't sure how it was going to turn out. And so he created Adam and Eve and wasn't sure they were going to sin. 
kind of gave them the keys to the car and they, they went down the wrong path and God came back and like, wow, I didn't know they were going to do that. But I took a risk. I created them, not sure if they were going to walk upright. They took me by surprise by eating that fruit, even though I told them not to. So I better come in and fix the problem after the fact. Do you want a God like that? The thing I ask an open theist is, why would you worship a God like that? And their answer is, well, because a God like that risks all because he loves me so much. He values me. He values my free will. And so that's why I worship him is because he makes much of me and takes a risk on me. See, very man-centered theology versus a God-centered theology. All right, let's, let's go down that path. You guys want to go down that path real quick? Okay. Choosing. Why did you, why do you make the choices you make? Very fundamental question. Why do you make the choices you make? Does God hold a gun to your head and make you make the choices you make? You choose and I choose based upon our nature. In other words, you chose brown shoes today because you wanted to choose brown shoes. You ate Cocoa Puffs today because you wanted to eat Cocoa Puffs over wheat, you know, Wheaties. You choose based upon your nature. Okay. As an unsaved person who's dead in sin, can you choose God based upon your nature? No, unless God does something in you to make him choose you or choose him. Once you're a Christian and you have the Holy Spirit, you have a new nature. So now you can choose things that are godly and good because your nature's been changed. Do you always choose the right way? No, because you still have sin in you. So God does not make our choices for us, but God created us. And God knows what choices we will make. And every choice we make is part of God's decree. And everything that comes to pass is part of God's plan. And nothing takes God by surprise. Does that answer your question? Right. Did I, in, in my answer, did I confuse the rest of the room? Are your heads about to explode? Do we need to stop tonight? Jerry's like, Yes kind of went into the deep end of the pool tonight on God's unchanging nature, but I think it's important for us to explore these things because we want to worship a God who doesn't change, and we want to worship the rock of our salvation. So let's, let's close in prayer. Father, we do thank you that you are the Lord that does not change. You're not a man that you would lie or a man that you would change your mind or a man that you would have regrets, but you are the unchanging God. And that gives us great confidence to know that you will keep us saved to the end. You will take care of us. You'll fulfill your prophecies that you won't stop loving us because of something that we've done. That we want to worship you, God, because you are the unchanging, eternal God. Help us to have 
hope in this. Help us to rest confident in this. Help us to be secure in this. Help us to, help this to strengthen our faith. <coughs> and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.